I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 8 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, January 22nd, 2023, and I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. And without fail, we have a lot of special counsel news to cover this week, uh, including new information about people who have testified before a grand jury in the investigations under Jack Smith's purview, including people who knew about Donald Trump's efforts to declassify documents connected to the Russia investigation, and a sighting of John McAtee entering the federal courthouse in D.C. to testify before the grand jury. Yes, and, Andy, we're going to discuss how the recent sanctions imposed on Donald Trump and Alina Haba and her law firm for their vexatious lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and 30 other defendants, including you, Andy. Yes, including me. Uh, and how that could be tied to the most recent round of subpoenas that we covered on last week's episode of Jack. But first, uh, let's kick off the show with our, our new segment here, Listener Questions. Excellent. I am. Uh, I can't wait to do it. We got a lot of good questions this week, some of them kind of pointing in similar directions. I'm actually going to cover two this week. So first question comes from Rochelle. And Rochelle writes, if it is true that the Trump team is not only paying the legal bills of January 6 witnesses and insurrectionists, but also supplying them with defense lawyers, in all likelihood, those lawyers are coordinating behind the scenes, sharing all the prosecutor's evidence and strategies with each other. Is that a crime? Would it give them an unfair advantage? Could you discuss how coordination on a large scale of the Trump lawyers across all the different prongs of the DOJ investigations could undermine the prosecution? Great question. Hits on a topic that I think a lot of people are curious about. So let me start off by saying that as a as a general matter, um, someone who's not involved in the case or the investigation, someone we'll refer to as a third party, a third party paying for someone's attorney or actually providing attorney an attorney, there's there's technically no difference between the two of those. And doing that is neither illegal nor uh, unethical on its face. But here's the standard. Even if your attorney is being paid for by someone else, that attorney is required to represent you and only you in your best interest. They can't be advising you to do things to protect that third party. So when a, when a lawyer steps over that line and starts trying to influence you to make decisions and take positions in your investigation or your prosecution, really that are in the best interest, not of you, but in the third party who's paying the bill, that is an ethical violation that can cost an attorney uh, their law license. So here, the best example of that issue coming up was in the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson. So you'll remember she testified to the January 6th committee uh, that she had a hard time finding a lawyer and that ultimately she turned to what she called Trump world to help uh, help get her a lawyer and, and help her pay for that lawyer. And the lawyer she started with was a guy named Stefan Passantino. Um, what raises some questions about his representation from her is in their very first meeting together, she asked him 
how his bill was being paid, who was paying for her representation, and he refused to tell her. Uh, she then asked him about a retention letter or a retention agreement, which is a very standard thing that lawyers provide to a new client. It outlines the responsibilities of each party, kind of what the terms of the representation will be, and he wouldn't give her one of those either. So it doesn't necessarily mean he did something illegal or unethical, but it is a strange thing for him to do under those circumstances, and it rises, raises some good questions. Yeah. And also uh, in that last huge, giant sweeping subpoena from Jack Smith that we talked about on the last episode, uh, he was looking for retention agreements between attorneys and and people who were witnesses that that were part of the subpoena. And uh, also, I I wanted to address something else you brought up. How, you know, is it morally right or ethically right or legally okay for all of those attorneys to coordinate and sort of Uh, you know, work together and give each other information. And that, you know, there are things called joint defense agreements. In fact, back in the Mueller, she wrote days, one of the ways that I was able to predict somebody was about to get indicted or start cooperating was when they withdrew from the larger joint defense agreement. Uh, That that was, you know, everybody was like, oh, CNN was tipped off that Roger Stone was going to be arrested. I knew he was going to be arrested because he he pulled out of his joint defense agreement and there's no way he was going to cooperate. So, you know, it's not it wasn't like a some sort of inside deep state, you know, DOJ working with CNN to, to, you know, it was like this is just obvious to me. And I might not have, you know, said all the reasons that I knew that he was going to be arrested so I could look super cool for being able to predict it. But that is one of the things that sort of indicates that somebody's about to either cooperate or get uh, get indicted. Are so you're, you're giving away um, the tricks of the trade here. You need to hold <laughs> on to some of these little gems. But um, you're absolutely right. The joint defense agreement. Look, it's a it's there's nothing improper about it on its face. Um, the attorneys of defendants in the same case or in different cases that are kind of based on the same facts, they will enter into these agreements for that purpose. So they can share information with each other without violating their um, their obligation of attorney-client privilege to their own client. So they go to the client, they ask them, is it okay if we agree to a joint defense agreement with so-and-so? And it's a very, very uh, advantageous thing for defense attorneys to do because they get a better look at what the prosecutors are doing across the whole range of defendants. But as you said, it is frequently abused uh, in ways to benefit some defendants. So in mob cases, we would see this a lot, right? If you would go out and arrest, like let's say you arrested six people in the same case in an organized crime case, it was very common for one of the attorneys for usually one of the higher ranked defendants to immediately call a meeting of the joint defense group. And by doing so, they know that if you're cooperating with the government, you can't attend that meeting. And so they, the attorneys would use those meetings as a way of fleshing out, not just finding out who the cooperators were, because that's very important to them, but also it was a way of putting pressure on people in that case to not cooperate. Because you know if you're cooperating, if your lawyer can't go, then it's revealed to your co-defendants that you're cooperating, and then you could be in great danger. So it was always very intense in those first few days after an arrest to make sure that anyone who, you know, right off the bat indicated they wanted to cooperate, we had to try to help them find independent counsel and then have them moved usually to a different prison or a different facility so they wouldn't uh, be retaliated against. So that's pretty much the the uh, the information on joint defense agreements. I don't think it's surprising at all that we're seeing them 
in these cases where there's lots of witnesses, lots of people going to be brought in before the grand jury. Um, and, you know, witnesses can talk about what happens in the grand jury, unlike prosecutors yeah. and the government are bound by grand jury secrecy. Rule 6E prohibits them from disclosing anything that happens with the grand jury. But if you're called as a witness, you can walk out of that several hour session, tell your attorney everything they asked you, and then your attorney can share that with someone who's in the defense group. Um, and that, that gives the defense lawyers uh, a real insider's look at what the prosecutors are doing. Yeah. And most of the sources on a lot of the reporting that you're getting on this podcast come from those people who testified That's right. to the grand jury and, and not from the Department of Justice. So when you hear uh, retaliatory, agitating statements from the Trump world side saying that the DOJ is leaking and they're doing all this leaking, it's not the DOJ. It's their own attorneys and or people who who testified and, or agreed to speak to the press about what was asked of them uh, in the grand jury. Because, yeah, it's not illegal for you to tell. They say, hey, kindly don't tell anyone about this subpoena or whatever. Uh, it might could jeopardize our case, but that doesn't stop, you know. So, and also recalcitrant right. witnesses do it. Like Bannon and, and Navarro will just put it out on the Internet and say, look at this subpoena I got from these bastards, you know. And so it's it, so it kind of it could be a recalcitrant witness. It could be somebody who wants to get. And a lot of times I've I've seen, Andrew, uh, a, a good witness. Uh, you know, good is subjective. Relative. A very but, relative concept yeah, relative. in this case. But like a like a Pat Philbin or, or a Pat Cipollone, whose lawyers will want to tell the press uh, what has happened so that they can get out ahead uh, of the news that could break later uh, so that they can sort of not really control the narrative, but have a better grasp on it than somebody who doesn't say anything at all. So that sure. happens a lot, too. First rule in crisis communications, get out in front. Be the person that reveals the news or the scoop or whatever, rather than be the person that's being talked about. So I think you're seeing that here. And witnesses who have been in front of the grand jury or who have been subject to subpoena, they are perfectly free to go out and do that as much as they want. Okay, so second question comes from Max. This is one that a bunch of people asked about this week. Uh, Max says that from what we say in the podcast, the investigation is going at a high tempo. However, looking at the sheer size of it, the number of people involved, the ramifications, is it reasonable to think that a final verdict can be reached in a time frame compatible with the next general election? If not, what happens in a post-2024 world in the case of a GOP president? So um, that's a great question. It drives right at this issue that uh, fans of Mueller, she wrote, and folks who suffered through the Mueller report and its ramifications will remember well. There is a Department of Justice policy that is founded on a memo from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the super smart, big-headed brain shed within the Department of Justice that weighs in and tells the Attorney General what's lawful and what's not. There is this memo that says that you cannot indict a sitting president. And basically, the reason behind that, and I'm, I am, uh, to say paraphrasing, is, is really putting it mildly. The basic theme behind the memo is it's not fair to indict a sitting president because by doing so, you are burdening the president with mounting a defense to a criminal matter, which is such a huge distraction and will take up so much of the president's time that you're actually depriving 
the voters and the citizens of this country, you're depriving them of the full attention and the honest services of the person that they have elected president. And there is, of course, no one else who can do that very important job while there is a sitting president. And so it's just not a good thing, and it's not fair to the people who've elected that person. So think about it in the Rob Herr case. Um, I think if special counsel Rob Herr concludes his investigation quickly and determines that he thinks that a crime has been committed by President Biden, um, I fully expect that he would indicate that in his report to the attorney general, but that he would not seek an indictment. I think that he would essentially abide by this DOJ policy, not law, but policy. Um, and even if he didn't, you know, Merrick Garland has the final decision on that. And certainly Merrick Garland is not the kind of guy who's going to simply um, brush aside that sort of a significant policy. Yeah. And he might not even say her if there was a crime found. By the way, I don't think there will be. But if he found a crime, he he probably, like Mueller did in his report, wouldn't even say he feels that a crime was committed because that also could violate the constitutional right of Joe Biden. He would not be able to face his accuser in court because he cannot be indicted. Uh, and that was something that a lot of we had to explain a lot of when the Mueller report sure. came out. I mean, I personally would, you know, I, I'm sort of a more aggressive uh, you know, type person. And I would be like, well, challenge that stupid memo. I think it's unconstitutional. Yeah. But, you know, that's sort of where we landed on that. And, you know, talking about 2024, if a, if a GOP, if a, a Republican wins that election, that person will just pardon everybody, probably. So there is a timetable, but there's also not. Um, and, and so because, you know, and that's why Matto said, uh, on MSNBC, look, there's no magic bullet here. The DOJ can't save us all. The voters alone can't save us all. The courts alone can't save us all. The you know the executive branch alone can't save us all. The the legislature can't alone save us all. Everything has to be firing on all cylinders for us to be able to preserve democracy. There's like ten different guardrails that have to hold. And so you know what people are worried about uh, you know the timing here and if the if a a Republican wins office in 2024, that's where the voters come in. We have to make sure a Republican doesn't win office in 2024. So there's, you know, a lot of different things to think about. I do think that accountability and indictment is essential for deterring these kinds of things from happening in the future, but that alone will not stop it from happening. The voters, the courts, everything has to work together to preserve democracy, if that if that makes sense. I just sort of wanted to put that out there. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I think you're right. And I think she was as well. And that's why we live and function in a system that has many layers and fortunately not one single point of failure. And, you know, lots of those uh, safety guardrails have to kind of come into play uh, together or at the same time or in a particular sequence to really have their full effect. Um, I think it's also interesting to contemplate that even in the case of, let's say, Donald Trump and the Mar-a-Lago documents case, let's say Jack Smith uh, reaches the conclusion that Trump should be indicted. Uh, if he's indicted while he's a candidate running for office and then he wins in 2024, I think that presents kind of an interesting opportunity for someone like you, A.G., who leans on the more aggressive side towards looking at these prosecutions, to make the argument internally at DOJ that, hey, the reasoning behind the OLC memo 
doesn't apply exactly the same way on these facts, simply because if Donald Trump wins election after he's been indicted, the voters elected him with full knowledge and understanding of the fact that the guy that they've elected could end up having to defend himself in court against a criminal charge. So I'm not saying that that argument would win the day, but if I were sitting at the you know, the deputy attorney general's table arguing with my uh, DOJ colleagues, which is a position I've been in many, many times in the past. I might just throw <laughs> it out there because, uh, you know, I like you. I've been known to throw out some pretty aggressive positions at times. <laughs> I appreciate that you were there as a voice for us, aggressively arguing those points at the table, my friend. That's right. All right. We're going to take a we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we have time to take a break here. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh some new information from Murray Wass and, uh, and uh, more news that has dropped. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. All right, let's discuss, Andrew, some breaking news this week from Murray Wass in an exclusive report he sent to us entitled Special Counsel has questioned several officials about Donald Trump's handling of Russia probe papers. And the lead says Trump's conduct in that regard will likely play a role in any decision by prosecutors to charge Trump. And that's according to people close to the investigation. And this is interesting to me because we know that our friend Zoe Tillman had gotten some information that um, Jack Smith was getting set to make some critical charging decisions within the coming weeks. So this could lend to that, might be a totally separate string. We don't know. That's all speculation. But basically what um, what Murray says in this uh, is some of the things we already knew. We knew, for, you know, for example, that on January 19th, the day before Joe Biden was inaugurated, Donald Trump, I guess because he likes to do stuff last minute, sent a memo to the attorney general and the ODNI and the CIA directing them to declassify a huge stack of thousands of classified documents pertaining to crossfire hurricane, you know, the the Mueller Trump Russia situation. Oh, I'm familiar now, with Mark, it. you know, have you heard of that? <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> now, I'm so glad you're the co-host of this show, man. Um now Mark Meadows, the next day, January 20th, my birthday, by the way. Uh, and this is uh this was inauguration day for Joe Biden. He only had a couple hours left in office, and Mark Meadows wrote a memo saying Donald had already declassified some of the Russia stuff but noted some of the agencies were objecting to declassifying a, the bulk of it because of privacy concerns. Meadow also said the White House would adhere to the Privacy Act, saying, accordingly, I'm returning the bulk of the declassified documents to the DOJ, including all that appear to have a potential to raise privacy concerns, with the instruction that the department must expeditiously conduct a Privacy Act review under the standards that the Department of Justice would normally apply, uh, redact material appropriately and release the remaining material with redactions applied. So he's like, hey, you guys got a couple hours. Can you do a quick privacy review on a couple thousand documents? <laughs> Have you ever known an attorney to do anything quickly? Okay, I, I digress. Go ahead. No, right. Yeah, the the <laughs> frick, man. I used to sit there, uh, try to get an OLC memo through just the Department of Veterans Affairs. It would take two years. That's right. Um, now, this upset Trump. He went into a rage, according to sources, uh, that the documents would never see the light of day. And it, by tomorrow, it'll be too late, he says, to, to declassify these documents. So that's a little bit of an interesting admission. Uh, and sources close to Jack Smith's investigations say that at least three people 
have been questioned before a grand jury, or well, one of them before a grand jury, three people have been questioned by uh, prosecutors, about whether Trump's anger could be considered a motive to just steal the documents. They're looking at this as a as intent, right? So, and I'm wondering, Andrew, could that type of rage and anger that they'll never get done in time, they'll never see the light of day, could that go toward motive for his unauthorized removal of, of these particular documents? It certainly could, but, oh well, I shouldn't say but. Here's the beautiful thing about motive. Motive is not actually required to prove a case against anyone. Motive is not an element of the of the offense. But here, as we know, criminal intent is, of course, an element of every criminal offense. What motive does for you is it gets you closer to proving intent. It puts the question of intent in a context that it allows the jury to kind of uh, to kind of um, think through whether or not they believe that they've seen and heard enough information to attribute the acts of the defendant to some sort of criminal intent. Um, so I think it's potentially very powerful evidence. And, and, and particularly when you combine it with what else we know about that last day in office, which is that none of the packing or preparation well, I should say a lot of it was not done in advance in the same way that it's done that it's been done for uh, prior administrations. Apparently, um, people were so afraid of approaching Trump with any of the preparations to leave office that they basically left it to the last possible second. So you can imagine that, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm I'm speculating here. You can imagine that a lot of the grabbing of documents and packing of stuff in and around the residence and, and who knows, likely even the Oval Office, um, took place on that day. So uh, so this, uh, this information about what he was thinking about on that day, the fact that he might have been mad about the failure to d disclose all these documents, um, it's, as I think, takes on greater relevance when you know that that's all happening at the same time that people are literally scooping stuff up, dropping it into boxes and and packing it up for, I think, Virginia is where it went first. Yeah. And this also sort of gives a little insight uh, into the fact that he was trying to declassify at least some of these documents uh, before he left. And, you know, that there is there is a potential defense there. I was the president on the morning of January 20th. Uh, I wrote a memo on January 19th asking these things to be declassified. They're, therefore, because I'm president, they're automatically declassified. I don't care what the agencies object to. Uh, and, and again, it's important to note, Andrew, that the three criminal statutes listed on the affidavit for the search of Mar-a-Lago, none of those statutes, 18 U.S. Code 2071, 793, and 1519, if memory serves, None of them require any of the documents to be classified. That's right. Uh, it, it, it's more along the lines of, hey, declassified or not, those are presidential records. And you lied about having them and didn't produce them pursuant to a subpoena. And so therefore, that is 1519, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and but, you know, we don't a lot of that affidavit was, you know, redacted. And we don't know a lot of the information that's in it or or where this is going. But I think it's very interesting, at least. To to know that Jack Smith is trying to get at the declassification process. And so or, you know, the attempt, at least. And 
here's some more information from this article. Right-wing columnist John Solomon, who we've known from back from the Mueller days, and Kosh Patel claimed to have read all these documents, the Russia ones. Uh, did they have clearance? Uh, you know, we know Donald was trying to install Kosh Patel at the CIA before he left, and Gina Haspel and the other IC principals threatened a mass resignation, a suicide pact, quote-unquote, if he had done that. Um, and Patel was granted access to the Russia papers, uh, and that was confirmed in a June 19th, 2022 letter, 2022, Yep, a year and a half after he left office, that Trump sent to the archivist, um, Deborah Steidel Wall, to designate Kosh Patel and John Solomon as representatives for access to presidential records of my administration. Right there, he's admitting they're presidential records, but whatever. Pursuant to the Presidential Records Act. So how was Donald... Andrew, a private citizen at the time in 2022, able to grant Kash Patel, another private citizen, and John Solomon, another private citizen, access to these documents? Well, the short answer is he wasn't. He can't do that as a private citizen. That's just not how that works. Now, I, you know, I don't have any personal knowledge of either of these gentlemen's possible access to classified information, but... Um, it's, it's likely that Kash Patel had uh, security clearance when he was working for the government, right? He started, he was a, a um, kind of a key aide to Devin Nunez on the House Intelligence Committee. So he likely had to have access for that role. Um, and then, of course, towards the end of his run there, infamous as it was, he was in a high-ranking position at the Department of Defense. He probably needed at least a TS clearance for that. So it's possible he had one when he was in government, but he would have had to have been read out of that clearance when he left with the administration. John Solomon, I can't even, I can't even imagine that John Solomon ever had a clearance, um, certainly not while he was working as a journalist, which is, I think, what he was before he started basically working for Trump. Um, but I so, imagine that's what the grand jury was asking Kosh Patel when, when he pled the fifth or when he you know, eventually gave him limited use immunity was, yeah. did... Donald tell you that you could read these documents because he had declassified them. You know, did, would, you know, did he truly believe that his memo on January 19th meant that those documents were declassified? Now, again, that wouldn't have any impact on the right. crimes that, <laughs> that were found. But I mean, it's it goes toward other possible crimes that weren't listed on that affidavit. And, and, it, and it punches through this nonsensical, I, I declassified everything defense, which I should point out, he hasn't even mounted in any court proceeding so far, probably because he can't find a lawyer to do it for him because everyone knows that it's false. Um, but that's where evidence of his anger on January 20th over the fact that the declassification wasn't completed would really poke a hole in that kind of defense. If you were ranting and raving and screaming at people about how, how mad you were that the declassification hadn't taken place, you can't later say, I thought they were all declassified. Yeah, that's, a, that's again, that's toward intent. Uh, and also, if you know, you're really mad and you say to, well, I'm just going to take them, you know, <laughs> then you know that you're, do that you're doing something wrong. And so that's why the testimony of all these aides is very important. I'm, I wonder if Solomon's bought, been brought in. We haven't heard any news that he has or hasn't, but we know Patel was. So I imagine, you know, if you're going to go for Patel, you should go for Solomon, too. Now, um, I want Andrew, talk a little bit about what Paul Pelletier said, because it it strikes me as interesting in that with regard to a conversation you and I had earlier today about previous news that had come out 
uh, about a, almost a quid pro quo with the National Archives and Donald Trump, right? That's right. So um, according to Murray Waz, Paul Peltier, former acting chief of the Justice Department's criminal fraud section, said that the new information in this story, that prosecutors appear to be focusing on the intent and purpose of Trump removing the documents from the White House to take to Mar-a-Lago, and that Trump may have been engaging in extraction of what he calls Russia hoax documents, appears, appears to indicate that prosecutors are likely moving closer to making charging decisions regarding Trump and others. And this was interesting to me, AG, because you know, it reminded me of some reporting that we had seen uh, as early as last October in a couple different outlets, but um, but I'll cite to the uh, Business Insider who reported at that time that former President Donald Trump late last year floated the idea of swapping the files that he took from the White House to Mar-a-Lago in exchange for, quote, sensitive documents about the FBI investigation of his 2016 campaign's ties to Russia, according to the New York Times. They go on to say that- Sounds to me like, you know, sorry to interrupt, but it sounds to me like when Meadows wrote that memo saying, I'm sending the bulk of these papers back to the DOJ, that he didn't get to take a lot of those with him because they weren't declassified and was trying to make some sort of a deal. I mean, of course, that's speculation, but I mean, wow. Yeah, I mean, like, this kind of closes off that narrative, right? It gives us kind of what could be the end of the story here. Um, so so as the National Archives presses Trump to return scores of documents being stored at Mar-a-Lago, the former president, still angry about the Russia probe, was, according to Business Insider, was frustrated by the government agency's refusal to disclose documents that he felt would back up his claims as per the Times. So... Again, it gets you to this idea of intent. It maybe explains why he was taking all these things and holding them hostage because his efforts to disclose all the Russia documents failed. And so literally, maybe you're taking presidential records and national defense information and some classified documents as a bargaining trip. You know, the great deal maker. It's not uh, impossible to imagine that he was thinking this through kind of, you know, a few steps down the road clearly a few steps ahead of himself, that giving, you know, taking advantage of the leverage he had with these presidential records in order to get something back that he wanted, which in this case would have been the revelation of whatever he thinks are in these Russia documents. Yeah. And that's what makes me laugh. What does he think is in there that would exonerate him? I mean, honestly, what what it is, is, I mean, they'll take anything and cherry pick it, uh, to to make it fit their narrative. And so if you, he has those actual documents, he can pick and pull and choose and, you know, cite it having been in an FBI document and make it seem like it's supporting his story. And, and that's how he kind of operates. Of course. Of course. So we're going to and we'll talk about this um, at the end of the show. We talk about the smackdown they just got in the civil case. But like, don't ever let the facts get in the way of an effective narrative. That's that's a basic Trump tactic we've seen it time and time again. Um, it is crazy in light of the the expansive revelations in the Mueller report and so much reporting and testimony. People like me, I've testified probably six or seven times on this stuff. It's all out there. It's almost impossible for me to imagine like what they think they're going to find in that stuff. And also the fact that it's CIA documents that we're talking about here, which further confuses like I, I, you know, I can't even imagine what they think is in there, but um, 
they're not going to let it go. I almost think it's more valuable to Trump and his crew not getting this stuff because it could continue to hold it up there as the holy grail and it continues to fuel people's grievances and anger about, oh, the terrible Russia hoax. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, something very cool happened on my birthday on Friday. A story broke uh, about, so, and this is somebody, this is about somebody, Andrew, that I have been following since he took over at the presidential personnel office. And I <clears throat> read a story that he was, uh, he was hiding bottles of Smirnoff ice in the office. And if you found it, you had to chug it. Like, uh, this little punk ass guy. And, and when his testimony came out from the January 6th transcript, his testimony, I, that was the first one I went to when they released all of their stuff, because I'm like, this guy knows he was like the second president during January 6th. Talk a little bit about this breaking news. It was a great birthday present. Sure. So of course we're, we're talking about, uh, Johnny McEntee. So this broke on CNN, uh, on Friday. Johnny McEntee was spotted entering the federal courthouse in D.C. So we know, we all know what that walk means. Um, if you enter the federal courthouse and then you're allowed to leave, it means you were probably there to testify in front of the grand jury. <laughs> if you enter and then are not seen from again until, you know, your first court appearance, that's a different uh, resolution. But in any case, the CNN reports that he testified before the grand jury that, of course, he had been subpoenaed, which makes sense. Um, we think it's possible that he might have been caught up in the subpoena we discussed last week, that among two dozen other things, those subpoenas were seeking information about anyone who had provided legal analysis of the feasibility of the fraudulent elector scheme. Now, according to McEntee's testimony to the January 6th committee, days before January 6th, McEntee texted the Pence team an absurd memo about Thomas Jefferson, but... <laughs> Just the idea that anyone was relying on legal analysis, or really any kind of analysis from, what was he, 22-year-old Johnny McAdee? I don't know. Maybe he was a year or two I think he was 25 when he got his job there. Okay, yeah. 25. Um, is just so... It's funny, it's absurd, but it's also sad that someone like that was that close to the president of the United States and in a position of influence. But anyway, I digress. So this uh, infamous um, and esteemed uh, legal analysis was, was apparently a bullet list <laughs> memo, which was filled with misleading statements about Thomas Jefferson in 1801, when he was the sitting vice president and oversaw the electoral, the electoral certification of his own victory over incumbent President John Adams. Um, and quoting from the memo, says, this proves that the VP has, at a minimum, a substantial discretion to address <laughs> issues with the electoral process. I can only imagine what at a maximum would have been, but okay. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. that's... And, and what's interesting is there's nothing in the memo about how it is, at a minimum, that this addresses issues with the electoral process. It doesn't yeah. even explain... No, it's it's just Thomas Jefferson was this and then therefore this. And it's just and there's no connective tissue, which is we see a lot of that, by the way, in court pleadings and court filings from the from Trump world. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're just like, well, you know, it's Tuesday. So therefore the sky is green. Yeah. You know, and you're just there's nothing that explains any of it. I'm dying to see the case law that he cites in his memo or, you know, the the legal analysis or or maybe it's just like a glancing reference to Wikipedia. Who knows? 
uh, I don't have the memo. If I did, I'd read it uh, uh, live on the air. Obviously, Jefferson accepted the votes from Georgia, a state he clearly won, and did not discard votes from any state, which is, of course, what Trump was pushing Pence to do. Um, Jefferson, uh, not being Trump, uh, didn't <laughs> didn't uh, <laughs> perpetuate any sort of fraud over the certification of electors, and and that's history. So, a fascinating, uh, fascinating story. I'm sure that Johnny is probably spending a lot of time being interviewed by all kinds of investigators these days. Yeah, and that was just one aspect of the things that stood out to me from his January 6th Select Committee um, the testimony. There could be dozens of other questions they're asking him about Trump's frame of mind. He was very close to the president in the days leading up to January 6th. Why he left, why he went home, where did he go? Why did he leave the Capitol? You know, I mean, there's all sorts of different things. But I, I think that this mostly has to do with the fraud, the investigation into the fraudulent elector scheme, uh, because specifically that subpoena asked for those analyses and, and he gave one. So, yeah, I know for a fact that th that had to be in there. It, it would be I mean, as an investigator, he'd be a fascinating interview subject. And you can get this from just reading his testimony to the January 6th committee. I thought he was. um I'm going to say surprisingly, maybe interestingly open and responsive to questions. He was even confident in answering things that I wouldn't have expected him to answer. And the impression I had was that, you know, part of that was because he really didn't have a grasp on the legal significance of the answers he was giving. So that's actually a great interview. If you're an investigator, you got a guy who likes to talk. He doesn't mind answering questions. I, I do think, to give him credit, I think he was being forthcoming. I think he was, you know, he was he was relying on his memory. Um, mm -hmm. There were some places where he seemed to get a little cagey and, and that sort of thing. That's not uncommon. But I think if you sit down with him and put in the time, build a little bit of rapport, you're probably going to walk away with some interesting things that you didn't know before. Yeah, yeah. And his, his sort of nonchalance, almost cockiness, yeah. just was, I think, illustrative of his absolute lack of knowledge of why this is bad, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, you know, he's just worried about running into a bottle of Smirnoff ice and having to chug it, not so much about providing legal analysis for why the vice president should overthrow the government of the United States. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the feeling I got from it, too. But, yeah, exactly. those, those types of people can be like a font of knowledge uh, and information for prosecutors. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the very bad, no good week, uh, maybe year that Alina Haba is having <laughs> and uh, uh, that civil case that uh, you might or might not know something about it. I think you might have been named. Oh, yeah. Uh, as yeah. A oh, I'm on this one. Case. I'm all over it. And I have to say it's it's one of the most delicious bits of schadenfreude I've seen in a while. So we'll talk about that when we come back. Stick around. All right, we are back. Um, and now, AG, we're, we're to the point of the show that I've been like looking forward to all afternoon. We are going to discuss an unexpected court ruling in the Southern District of Florida that left us with one of the most extreme judicial smackdowns I think I've ever seen. And this one comes in the civil case of Donald Trump versus the world, uh, otherwise known as <laughs> Trump v. Clinton et al. 
Okay, so full disclosure, I am one of the et alls. I was a defendant in this absurd lawsuit, and I'll explain how that all worked out for me and my former colleagues uh, as we go along. So the basic facts here, EGR, in, on March 24th, 2022, Donald Trump filed a, a civil lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and 30 others, including me, Jim Comey, Pete Strzok, Lisa Page, Kevin Klein-Smith, Christopher Steele, who you will remember from the uh, infamous dossier, uh, Charles Dolan, a whole whole bunch of other folks. And what he alleged was a vast conspiracy, essentially like a civil RICO action, a massive conspiracy that was aimed at destroying his life and his career. Yeah. And it was nonsense. I mean, it was absolutely full of, like I said, when we were talking a little bit earlier about McEntee's memo, there was no judicial sinew to tie the muscles of the complaint together. That's right. Uh, and 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 what's going to it's going to be fascinating when we talk about some of the quotes from Judge Middlebrooks in this case. Uh, but uh, basically, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, responded with a mo- responded with a motion to dismiss. She did. She files the motion to dismiss right off the bat. Yep. And then in response to that, you know, the, her motion exposes all these flaws and this nonsense of, of the suit. And so Trump files an amended complaint. So that's like a new complaint. And the, and the purpose of that is to try to fix the problems in the original complaint. Well, it didn't actually do that, but it added 80 more pages of irrelevant allegations that did nothing to salvage the legal sufficiency of the claim. So with the amended complaint, the... That complaint was 193 pages. It was 819 paragraphs, alleging 14 counts against 31 defendants. Now, in July of 2022, the United States government, in the form, of course, of the of the Department of Justice, stepped in and replaced all of the former government employee defendants. So, this is a little bit uh, down in the weeds, but essentially, as a as a government uh, employee. In the working in the course of your duties, you cannot be sued for general negligence by private citizens. There's something called the Federal Tort Claims Act that basically says you have to sue the United States government, not the individuals acting in their professional capacity. There's a few things that you can get sued for personally. It's constitutional violations, essentially. And this complaint did not allege any constitutional violations, which is one, the first clue as to the lack of understanding of the law of the lawyers who filed it, but I'll get more to the, on that later. So in July, Jim Comey, myself, Kevin Kleinsmith, Lisa Page, Pete Strzok, we all get essentially removed from the case as defendants and the United States government takes our place. So fast forward to September, um, the judge, uh, Middlebrooks in the Southern District of Florida, he dismisses the complaint with prejudice, meaning you cannot bring it again. And he says, you know, quoting Judge Millbrooks here, he says, I found that the amended complaint was a quintessential shotgun pleading, that its claims were foreclosed by existing precedent, and its factual allegations were undermined and contradicted by the, by the public reports and filings upon which it purported to rely. I reserved jurisdiction to adjudicate uh, issues pertaining to sanctions. So... After that, one defendant requested sanctions. They got a they re, they got an award of about fifty thousand dollars, maybe sixty thousand dollars when you add everything up. Um, and eventually, eighteen other defendants moved for sanctions against Trump 
uh, and Alina Haba. And this order that came out yesterday is the result of that motion. And, in, and I'll get to the last line first. The judge ruled strongly in the movement's favor, awarding, uh, well, I should say, finding Trump and Haba to be jointly and severally liable for a sanctions bill of $937,989.39. So, 39 cents. Yeah, that's right. Don't forget <laughs> the 39 cents. Massive smacked out. Of course, in a footnote on the last page, he says, you know, basically, if you don't have the ability to pay, you have 10 days after the filing of this order, <laughs> at which time you can submit a <laughs> verified statement of your net worth, which includes all assets and liabilities. Something tells me that's not going to happen in this case. Dude, that was the best bit of shade of this whole thing. Hey, Trump, if you can't afford a million dollars, just file it under seal. Let me know what your net worth is. Right. Like that is a catch up on the wall causing footnote right oh, there. You know, you know, the, the burger hit the wall yesterday at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago. So well done. All right. So I, I'm, I'm totally like, I'm just loving this, obviously. But let me read a couple of quotes that I think are amazing. So the, so the order opens with the following paragraph. This case should never have been brought, period. Its inadequacy <laughs> as a legal claim was evident from the start, period. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it. Intended for a political purpose, none of the counts of the amended complaint state a cognizable legal claim. 31 individuals and entities were needlessly harmed in order to dishonestly advance a political narrative. A continuing pattern of misuse of the courts by Mr. Trump and his lawyers undermines the rule of law, portrays judges as partisans, and diverts resources from those who have suffered actual legal harm. Wow. I mean, that is all you need to know about this issue. But he goes on for another 46 pages. Yeah, it's like that for the entire thing, too. It, it's amazing. And he, and he parses through it. Like, there's a whole section that talks about different theories in the complaint, one of which was that Jim Comey and Hillary Clinton conspired together to destroy Donald Trump by having him prosecuted. Um, and so he walks through all of the crazy allegations that come up in the course of you know, 20, 30 paragraphs in the complaint that like are supposedly building to this grand conspiracy. Um, and, he, and he dismisses them all because they're just preposterous on their face. He even points out the fact that the idea that Comey and Clinton would ever work together on anything was just like cats and dogs living together, right? It just doesn't happen. So he said, so in a footnote at the end of that section, he says, this provocative allegation stirred my curiosity. So he's referring to the fact um, that Trump refers to this letter that uh, then DNI Radcliffe sent uh, to the Hill kind of, you know, uh, as it's presented in the complaint, Trump is trying to suggest that Radcliffe's letter proves this conspiracy between Comey and Clinton. So he says, this provocative allegation stirred my curiosity. So I looked up the Radcliffe letter. The allegation in the amended complaint fails to mention that the information in the letter came from a Russian intelligence analysis and that Mr. Radcliffe commented, quote, the intelligence community does not know the accuracy of this allegation or the extent to which the Russian intelligence analysis may reflect exaggeration or fabrication. 
<laughs> the Trump the, the judge goes on to say, Mr. Trump's <laughs> lawyers saw no professional impediment or irony in relying upon Russian intelligence as a good face faith basis for their arguments. <laughs> I mean, the the nerve to cite Russian intelligence to prove that there was a fake Russian conspiracy out to get you. I, I just uh it bothers the mind. It really does. Wow. Yeah. Um, another great uh, quote here. The amended complaint is a hodgepodge of disconnected, often immaterial events, followed by an implausible conclusion. <laughs> this is a deliberate attempt to harass, to tell a story without regard to facts. Um, and then he goes on to say the plaintiff consistently misrepresented and cherry picked portions of public reports. This goes back to what I was talking about, why he wanted those Russia That's right. documents. This plant, the plaintiff consistently misrepresented and cherry-picked portions of public reports and filings to support a false factual narrative. Often, uh, the report or filing actually contradicted his allegations. It happened too often to be accidental. Its purpose was political, not legal. Factual allegations were made without any evidentiary support in circumstances where falsity is evident. So, I mean, yeah. just an absolute... It just—it's yeah. incredible, and I—I I, I love that that first part that you read. I mean, like this is a deliberate attempt to harass, to tell a story without regards to the facts. Like that is what we know about Donald mm-hmm. Trump and his history in the presidency. And I, I look—I speak on this point with some distinct personal experience. I mean, <laughs> this guy—that's what he does. He traffics in cherry pick, misrepresented uh, pseudo facts. And uses them to harass and bully and malign people. Um, that is yeah. not going to work in this current case. And so this is kind of why I wanted to spend so much time talking about this in the podcast today. I think this is directly relevant to what we're watching in terms of Jack Smith's work. Um, yeah. And-, and before before we get into the relevancy, I just wanted to br- I just wanted to bring up uh, my favorite quote. Uh, from the from this entire absolute bench slap where where Middlebrook says and oh and by the way when that first guy was awarded sanctions sixty something dollars sixty something thousand dollars that same day Trump filed a lawsuit against Letitia James in uh, the New York Attorney General much the same kind of yep. BS yep. that was in That's this right. lawsuit and I said oh you might want to uh, you know drop that lawsuit uh, so. Interestingly, um, within 12 hours of hitting being hit with the million dollar sanctions on this one, they dropped their lawsuit against Tish James. Uh, so I thought, I thought that was pretty rare, great. Uh, instance of good judgment. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but here's my favorite quote. Uh, Middlebrook says, here we are confronted with a lawsuit that should never have been filed, which was completely frivolous, both factually and legally, and which was brought in bad faith for an improper purpose. Mr. Trump is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. He is the mastermind of the strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. He knew full well the impact of his actions. As such, I find that sanctions should be imposed on Mr. Trump and his lead counsel, Ms. Haba. <laughs> that is that is brilliant. And, you know, don't don't think the story ends here because the judge uh, pointedly held them both jointly and severally liable, which means that 
uh, either one, then it means you could recover the judgment essentially in its entirety against either one. So what this does is it opens up the door for a fight between the two of them. And if you think that Trump isn't going to look at her and say, I told you not to do this and you pay him, I'm not paying him. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I would be very surprised if that doesn't happen. But yeah, and I have advised Alina Haba on Twitter to file suit uh, yeah, <laughs> to, to seek half of these damages. <laughs> be first, and this is where this could be a, a connected to to Jack Smith because we know in that big giant subpoena we talked about last week that Jack Smith wanted to know about how some how actually all of the fundraising that happened after the election, the fundraising uh, off the big lie how that was spent and where it went. And I'm, you know, and I'm wondering if any of the perhaps documents he took or if any of the money he fraudulently raised went to pay for this or feed this lawsuit. And it would be interesting to see how that plays out. And there's other connections too, right, Andrew? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think the most obvious one is it really um, puts a huge dent in the, in the Trump legal team. So we know that Alina Haba represents Trump, not just in this representative, not just in this case. I mean, she was the lead lawyer on this thing. She filed it, signed her name on the complaint, but she also represents Trump in the New York AG case. She represents him in the E. Jean Carroll case, which we saw some developments on this week. Uh, and we know from reporting that she's also been advising in some capacity on the Mar-a-Lago documents case. So New York Times reports that Ms. Haba has offered advice in the federal investigation into Mr. Trump's handling of classified documents, according to people close to Mr. Trump, including arguing that he should hire someone to search his properties for any additional documents. Now, we already know that the result of that search from the private security company or lawyers, whoever it was he hired, has been controversial, as DOJ is. Uh, doggedly pursuing the identities of those folks, so they presumably so they can interview them about that work, and the Trump team is pushing back on having to re reveal that. Um, I'm sorry, uh, but I just don't think Alina Haba is going to be any match for Jack Smith and his team of incredibly experienced federal prosecutors. So. Uh, again, you know, raises this issue of like, who is really advising him? Is it even possible to advise him effectively? And uh, I don't think he's put himself on the best footing with that legal team. Yeah, I know. Traffic ticket lawyer versus the Hague. You know, I'm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah. We'll <laughs> that's see. where my money is. I remember thinking through the issue of like being replaced by by the United States in this suit and talking to um, the lawyers who were uh, responsible for those motions, like, it seems so obvious. Like, you can't, you just, you can't bring a suit like this. If there's laws that prohibit it. Like, why wouldn't they have, you know, changed their um, their complaint to include constitutional claims or, or just sued the right people? But, like, that was a bad sign that they were about to head off the cliff. Yeah, for real. Uh, and then one last story. I, you know, I think it was Alina Haba that was the traffic court lawyer. One of them was. I apologize if that wasn't. You can send me a correction. All right, one last thing before we get out of here. Um, there's some breaking news that just uh, came across our desks here. And we know that Jim Jordan has, and, and, you know, has sent seven letters at least uh, to the... Uh, to the Department of Justice demanding cooperation and documents. And he, he, today he was seated, Friday he was seated, 
uh, as chair of a judiciary committee in the House of Representatives, which is just a crime in and of itself, um, the, the DOJ finally responded to to Jim Jordan because Jim Jordan was demanding all of the documents because they're, you know, they set up this subcommittee to investigate the investigation of, of Donald Trump in January 6th and the documents and all that other, you know, everything that Jack Smith is looking into. And uh, DOJ got back to him and said, oh, we will totally cooperate with Congress as, you know, uh, as we do, as we always have. Uh, oh, but one thing. Longstanding DOJ policy prevents us from confirming or denying the existence of pending investigations in response to congressional requests or providing non-public information about our investigations. Okay, Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Uh, and so that is, you know, being seen by the right-wing media as not cooperating with Congress and a violation of the separation of powers, but this is a long-standing thing that it actually is part of the separation of powers doctrine. Uh, you know, I mean, talk about that for a second. Yeah, you don't get more separation of powers than this. It is a um, a absolutely consistent precedent that the department does not share information from open, ongoing criminal investigations with the Hill now. On, you know, on some on matters of national security, uh, DOJ or FBI representatives will go up to the Hill and brief uh, Congress on national security threats, but they don't talk about like this case against this person, that sort of thing. And this is look, Jim Jordan knows that everybody on the Hill knows this. This is just more performative outrage. Uh, to back DOJ into a corner, to build a, a record, a, a um, nonsensical record that they can cast as not cooperating and to do who knows what with. Maybe they decide to pursue, you know, impeachment of uh, of Merrick Garland or something along those lines. Who knows? I, I, I'm, I can't predict it. Um, but this is absolutely the obvious res uh, end to this issue. DOJ, not under this AG or any other AG, is never going to respond with case information uh, to a letter like this from any chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And I knew they wouldn't under these circumstances. I've been saying on TV for the last week that they should not. I've been getting tarred and feathered on some right-wing media outlets <laughs> saying like, oh, McCabe is, is advocating for DOJ to to, you know, stand up Congress and not not cooperate. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they should stand on precedent. They should conduct themselves in the same orderly and lawful way that they have for, for many, many administrations. Um, and I would also point out, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that maybe one acceptable way for DOJ to respond to these requests is to just completely ignore them and not respond at all. And then when the AG is subpoenaed to appear, maybe you just ignore the subpoena and don't show up on the day of your appearance. Because if you'll remember, that's what Jim Jordan did when subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. So apparently that's a perfectly, no response is an acceptable response according to, um, according to Chairman Jordan. Hmm. Well, what I would do is I would have Doug Letter come over to my house and say, all right, we're going to sue... Uh, the subcommittee of the judiciary investigating the investigators uh, for uh, unlawfully subpoenaing me and then just drag it out in court until the 119th Congress, because that happened with a lot of people 
who were subpoenaed to the January 6th committee that just didn't feel like showing up. But it's best to not, you know, it's it's best to respond a little. Do what, Meadows and Sc- Me- do what Meadows and Scavino did. Of course. I'm obviously I'm, I'm, uh, I'm exaggerating here for uh, comic effect, but I fully expect DOJ is not going to comply with this request. They will likely get subpoenas as a result of not sending stuff up voluntarily. And I would expect they'll go into court and try to have the subpoenas quashed. And that's where the litigation begins. And if they suffer an adverse uh, decision in the course of that litigation, I fully expect DOJ would appeal this all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. That's a long process, as we know. Yep. Yep, it is. Uh, And, you know, or like I said, do what Meadows and Scavino did, which is show up, turn over some things, answer some questions. uh, And then, you know, then you you can't be, you know, I, I suppose Jim Jordan could refer you criminally to the Department of Justice. But because they didn't indict Meadows and Scavino, people might actually be glad about that now. They cooperated a little bit. And so, therefore, the Department of Justice was like, I'm not going to get in a privilege battle over a misdemeanor. And now they have precedent saying we didn't do it. These are similarly situated. We didn't do it for them. We're not going to do it for this. So, yeah, that uh, I think helps helps their independence, helps their arms arms length thing. And and we'll see how that all turns out. But I am a little bit worried about this this committee. But now I am a lot less worried knowing the Department of Justice is going to stick with its longstanding precedent. Absolutely. Absolutely. As they should. All right. Well, it's been so great to talk to you. We had a lot of news this week. I imagine we're going to even have more next week uh, as we inch closer to those final weeks where he might start making some critical charging decisions. And again, we don't know if that's Trump or like Walt Nauta, but we'll see what happens on the next episode of Jack. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. We'll see you next time. M S W Media. <laughs>